Hi, I'm Steph, and this is the Money Flirt Podcast. The Money Flirt was born from the idea that we all deserve to have a lighthearted, flirty, and fun relationship with money. My personal journey with money was anything but flirty up until fairly recently. A few years ago, I started to investigate the ways that I was programmed since childhood to think and behave around money. I've since done a ton of work on this area of my life in the form of coaching, spirituality, embodiment practices, nervous system regulation, and a lot more. Yes, I've done a lot, but in the past year, I've skyrocketed my money healing by doing one very simple yet powerful action on a regular basis. I openly talk about money. Shame cannot exist when light is cast upon it, and this has truly been my secret sauce for up-leveling my money habits and feelings around wealth. So I'm here to create a space for people to talk with me about their money story. I'm here to champion the brave souls who acknowledge their shame and to cheer on their success as well. No matter who you are, where you're from, or what you did, you have a money story. Time for the obligatory, let's get into the episode. Friends, welcome back to another episode. It's... um. I'm going through such a transition right now in life and so I don't know if I'll be able to keep up the weekly cadence. I'm going to try my best but also I'm not gonna you know kill myself to get these episodes out just because you know they are from they're from my heart and so when it starts to feel like a little bit like there's some you know sticky points of getting them out I just take a break and and give myself some time to to rest and regroup and then come back. So I'm super excited with today's episode with Deanna. You'll hear all about how she has this amazing group program called Bosque Money, where she helps people um, just kind of identify their money archetypes, how to heal in community, which I think is so beautiful, she talks about, and just to, to learn more about themselves in relationship with money, not only for the individual healing, but collective healing as well. And so one thing I wanted to point out in the um, the intro is just this idea of decolonization. And it's something I've talked about before on the podcast, but it comes up, um, we, we don't mention it by name as um, decolonization around money, but um, it definitely is the subtext of what some of Deanna's work is is talking about and just like our conversation goes there in general where, um, and I thought a really interesting point is that you'll hear about Deanna's talking about Bosque Money is this idea of healing in community, healing as a group and the power that is in that experience. I recently heard a, a podcast episode with Dr. Tama Bryant. She is the author of Homecoming, Overcoming Fear and Trauma to Reclaim Your Whole Authentic Self. And she talks about decolonizing um, psychology and, and the trauma work like on um, the individual therapy level. I thought that was really interesting because she talks about how in a colonized society, we were like, it was like kind of every man for himself type of thing where you are expected to, you know, especially in like capitalism as well, just be on your own, very individualist. But in indigenous societies and cultures, it's often the opposite where communities and structures function more as like a egalitarian, like as a, like a group healing. And so um, Deanna's talking about that in her, her group. And I just thought that was a really interesting point that was like, oh, I've heard that recently before. Where was that? And so um, yeah, I love the idea 
of not only healing in a group, but just like going back and, and doing it in a way that's honoring the new systems um, that we're working to build from a social, social justice aspect. Um, Cool. So I don't really have too much for the intro. Again, I wanted to just say, like, I am in this stage of transition where I'm figuring out what's going on, like, in my personal life, in money flirt life, in my new business life, and also like, in my corporate life, right? Like if I, I am looking for other work. And so it's just been such a jumble. (laughs) So thanks for your patience with getting these podcast episodes out. To be honest too, it's been feeling, I I know it's so weird to think about this, but the, the podcast, like I see people listening, I see the numbers, but I've been to be totally transparent. I've been like confused if this is helping anybody, <laughs> like, cause it helps me. I love sharing the stories. I just wonder, like, is this resonating? If it is, I would love if you could reach out or just, you know, share with a friend or, or however it works, however you feel called to, to support the podcast. Maybe you can leave a review or, um, like I think on Spotify, like five stars, like <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling like, man, am I, am I alone out here? (laughs) But I know I'm not because I see you all listening. It's just a weird, it's a weird experience where I put this thing out into the world and then it's sort of like, yes, anybody there? (laughs) So yeah, if you're there, let me know. Um, I love making the podcast. I love holding these spaces for conversation. I know I'm at over 2000 listens. So I know it's people are listening. I know you're out there. Um, I would just love to, to get to know you more. I guess that's what I'm saying. All right. So a little bit about Diana Yanez. She is the, she's a financial empowerment coach, educator, speaker, and she helps groups get clarity on what they want to create in their life and how money can be a tool to get them there. Uh, While her technical skills help clients quickly navigate financial decisions, it's her ability to empower that really transforms their relationship with money. And so you're really going to hear about how she approaches this in such a beautiful way. I'm just in total awe of her, like just she mentions, you know, later in the episode that this is her rich life, like creating this program is part of what she's dreamed about. And so I love the idea. I love the, um, the money archetypes that she talks about. And she asks this question, which I think is just so powerful. What are you ask money? What are you asking money to do that it can't? And I was like deeply moved by that. Uh, perspective shift. And so I'm excited for you to get to know Deanna, hear about her program, sign up for her, for her um, community, if it, if it calls to you. And yeah, just enjoy her, her wisdom really. And so I'll have her um, social, um, I'll have her social linked in the show notes, but on Instagram, she's at all the colors eight and in between all the words are underscores. So all underscore the underscore colors underscore eight. So give her a follow, check her out and enjoy the episode. See you at the end. Thank you so much, Deanna, for coming on the podcast. I am just so excited to talk with you about money. I love your perspective on money and the work that you're doing with helping others. And um, I recently just 
revisited your page and you had said something that really stuck out to me about money is more than just hot tips and willpower. And I love that because like we're so often just like told that it is all about hot tips and willpower and that we're failing because we can't follow the hot tips and we don't have willpower. So I really appreciate your perspective. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm excited to be here. I loved the name of your Instagram, The Money Flirt. I was like, that's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> Intriguing. Like, how do you flirt with money? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a, it's a continual journey and process. I'm not always flirting with it. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm super excited to just chat with you and hear about your money story. And before we get into that, just, um, give you some space to talk about who you are, the work that is that you do and anything you'd like to share to give us context. Okay. Um, I am a certified financial planner. I am a Latina. I am first generation born in the U S I am, um, a demographer. So I also love population studies on like systems thinking. I love Excel and I love working with people. So that's like a lot of the identities that I lead with. I, my professional work is I'm a financial coach, I'm a financial empowerment coach. And I do that. I'm creating a way to do that through a community program. So right, right now I'm in the middle of the pilot for Bosque Money. Bosque Money is a community program where I help, where I help people cultivate the knowledge, skills, and practices they need to feel confident in their money decisions. And I'm doing it in a group because there's so much that is easier to do when you have many mirrors as opposed to just one person. Like often when it's, there's the whenever there's like the expert and then the client, there's kind of this hierarchy that's created, this teacher-student hierarchy, which can be helpful because I am a certified financial planner. I am an expert, but at the end of the day, I'm not an expert on your money, right? Mm -hmm. So that's really what I'm, what I'm helping people see through this community program. The, the way that it's set up, it's, it's six months. Uh, we meet weekly for the first six weeks. So it's 90-minute sessions. The groups are between eight to 12 people. And after that, we start meeting every fourth week so that by the end of the six months, participants will have a, like, a practice of at least once a month getting together with their money and seeing like what worked well, what didn't, what's coming up, what do I need to revise? That's the, the group sessions. Then we also have the Grove, which is an online community through Mighty Networks, where I give a lot of like the technical um, information on like, how do you prioritize your savings? I'm like more of the, the like nuts and bolts. And the third component is that between week six and week 26, participants will have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with me. Wow. I love that so much. I love the idea. And you had posted about this too, about the community piece of it, where it takes a bit of that pressure off as well when you're in a one-on-one -on -one situation. I, I've shared this a couple of times on my podcast. I had hired a certified financial planner before I had done any of this like money healing work and I got really triggered. She was great. She was really knowledgeable and really helpful, but it was just like, it was in my experience, it was just like too much attention on like too much like revealing of my money shadows and shame. Um, looking back now, I was actually experiencing money trauma, like having a reactivation around it. And so I think that's such a cool approach to be really nourished in community. And then just like the way you structured it to have it be the 
multiple months and like the support that you weave in throughout. That's awesome. I love it. I mean, when it comes to behavior change, sometimes it feels like it takes years. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't think people are going to stay with me for four years, like doing the same right. thing all the time, um, because I'm not a, I'm not acting as a financial planner. Um, but six months, it's still like a long enough commitment where you're going to be seeped in the work, and you'll see the change. Um, and and it's also like it takes like the accountability aspect of group work is really awesome. Mm-hmm. You told people you're going to do something, then next time you see them, you want to be like, yeah, I did it. And if not, it's like, well, what happened? Like what, um, and not in a shaming kind of way, but in a curiosity mm-hmm. way of like, what actually came up that made it so that you weren't able to have the conversation with your boss or your partner? Like what other things are there? And then it's it's addressing them. And it's in six months is enough time to put your finger, like to kind of delve into each of these areas. Totally. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm sure we'll get more into because I have more questions about that. But before we get into that, I'd love to just ask you about your money story, like whatever you would care to share. Um, Sometimes people talk about childhood experiences with money or a lot of times the inflection points come later in life when we're in our young adulthood, when we actually have to start like interacting with money. So anything you'd care to share to give us some like understanding of, of what it was like for you growing up with money. Yeah. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a first generation born in the U.S. And whenever I would go home to visit family, I could I could see the difference between like what's it like to be born here versus being born back in Mexico where, where I currently am. I'm currently in Mexico. Uh, but my first money memory that really stands out is I was eight or nine years old. I was at a little corner store buying candy with my younger cousins. And when we went up to the counter, uh, my my uh, my older cousin, he's a year older than I am, looked at me and was like, okay, you pay. And like I said, I was like eight or nine. And I was like, why? Like, why, why do I have to pay? Um, why am I the only one with money? And, and that question of like, what does it mean to have? What does it mean to not have kind of stuck with me? Or it has, it has been like an undercurrent in a lot of my decisions. And about four or five years later, uh, for middle school, we moved to Los Angeles from my agricultural town. I grew up in Calexico. It's on the border with Mexico. It's it's tiny. It's a little agricultural town. And while we were there, we were always kind of like, I always knew that we had plenty. But when I moved to LA and like my friends were going to Italy for spring break, I was like, oh, actually, I don't have as much as I thought I did. And I just kind of learned like how relative it is, you know, like some people go to Italy for spring break and other people like the thing that made me feel like I was wealthy was that I never had to wear hand-me-downs. Um, so <laughs> it's just different standards. Great. Oh my gosh. That's such a good point about it all being relative. Um, and sometimes it takes, yeah, like moving cities or like going to college for me, it happened going to college. Um, cause I also grew up in a really small town, um, Barstow actually in the middle of the desert, which is like, yeah. oh. so I, I can commiserate with just like being from the super small town. And then like, yeah, you're, you're sort of like looking at the world around you as one way. And then I went to Santa Barbara for college and mm. oh my goodness, that was a big, a big shock. And so it's important to, yeah, like notice those times and then like how that had an impact. So what what impact did that have, you know, like as you started to see more examples of different 
ways that people were like maybe wealthy or things like that? How did that influence you? The impact of seeing how relative um, money was kind of, it, it really helped me question, I guess that the story that like more is better because mm-hmm. I had to think like more is better for what, like what is it that you're trying to achieve? And one of the really awesome questions is like, are you asking money to do something that money can't do? Wow. So this is a, this is a funny story or it's a sad story. I remember, I remember being around 11 or 10 and my mom gave me a ton of little pantsuits. She bought me like 10 or 12, like pantsuits and which is really cute because like little kids wearing these like a red one with this leopard print they were really really cute and I was telling her about the story I was like why did you buy me so many pantsuits and she's like well I never spent Christmas with you because my family sold um they worked at a a they worked selling purses so during Christmas they were never home my parents would work like all day and she's like I just felt so guilty I never saw you and she didn't say all of the words but like something in what she said she's like oh I felt guilty that I never saw you so I would buy you a lot of stuff that always also lets me know it's like money's not the answer because like that's not actually what 11 year old me needed I didn't need like a dozen pantsuits (laughs) I just needed more time with my mom another part of growing up in a little town with uh, my parents being um, entrepreneurs in in a small business when walmart came to town i was like seven or eight years old i think um our business their business really changed um business i and i remember hearing about it i remember hearing like people are going to walmart now to buy purses instead of going to the swap meet where my family worked and i remember my dad telling me about how um a giant corporation like that was actually took a lot of wealth from the community and then siphoned it off somewhere else so, and the example he told me was like, when you see all of these like little stores at the swap meet, everybody has a greeter. Everybody is at the front, making sure that there's no theft, making sure that people are like, feel welcomed coming in. But at Walmart, there's one greeter. Right. So what used to be 30 jobs is not just one. Wow. And and those kind of conversations really fuel my my, my social activism now, my, my questioning of like, is our system, um, could our system be less extractive? Wow. That's such a, it's such a great example and question and, and proof of like what you just said about how siphoning off of money from the community through a big corporation and like the impact of these systems that we live with. I think that's such a good example. And like Walmart, that same thing happened in my town, (laughs) like Walmart coming in and um, and just like having like all of the, the small businesses suffering and just to hear, yeah, the impact on like a personal level of like you and just your family talking about it. Actually, it's really, it's pretty cool that your family would talk about it that way. Um, just to like bring the kids into the conversation around it. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I just overheard it, mm-hmm. but my family was always, um, because they were small business owners, like we were always talking about work, always talking about money, always talking about like when the big sales were coming. So I grew up with a lot of very open money conversations. Um, Not so like, and and the conversations that I have now are more about like the relationship with money as opposed to the numbers. Mm -hmm. It's funny because as a certified financial planner, um, 
I have a lot of training on the technical aspects of money. Like I could help you figure out your estate and I could help, I can help a lot of high net worth individuals minimize their tax burden. And the conversations that I love are like, what are you asking money to do that money can't do? Uh, you know, <laughs> That's, And I wish my parents had asked themselves that. When you ask that question now, what are some themes that you hear from people talking about like what they're asking money to do that it can't do? I think it's very similar to like, what are you asking food to do that food can't do, mm-hmm. right? If you're feeling lonely, maybe you'll eat something that tastes good. Maybe you'll buy something that feels good. If you're feeling scared about the future, maybe you'll save um, like an exorbitant amount. Like you won't treat yourself at all to like living today. And money... I think in the, so what Bell Hooks calls the imperialist, patriarchal, white supremacist culture that we live in, it's actually not money that's going to keep you safe. It's changing the system. Um, It's also relationships. Like having really healthy, robust relationships can do more for you than your 401k. Amazing. Like, so such an important thing to think about. And like I ask, and I'll ask you this later in the interview, but you know, I ask people about what their rich life is and almost always it's things that are not that money can't buy. You know, we Mm -hmm. always say that money can't buy, but it's like, if that's really the case, then what is like, what is, why is money this like big obstacle in between us and what we think of as like our most fulfilled selves. And so that's a really great conversation and interesting question. Um, did you come up, like, how did you come up with that question to reflect on relationships with money? I don't, I don't even actually know. Um, when I'm working with clients and it's usually one, it's one-on-one, like historically it's been one-on-one work. I do a lot of listening and I love to listen to like the thing they're not saying. Mm -hmm. And that's often how I'll get my questions. Somebody must have said something about who knows what it was. And I was like, do you think money can do that? Um, And they're like, no, actually money can't, whatever. Like there's so many things that money can't do. Money can do a lot of things. It can open a lot of doors. And another thing to bring up or to lift up is that a lot of the things that I've mentioned, like my bell hooks quote, um, like we can't ask individuals to heal collective issues. I think that's from Reverend Kyoto Williams. I'm always, and I'm always really into giving credit where credit is due just to show that I'm not creating all of these things in a vacuum. Like I feel very supported by thinkers that I admire and by conversations that I have. And that's, that's why I'm also creating a community program, right? Cause I, I think I feel, I believe I have the suspicion that as more of us, become aware of money, what money can and can't do, we'll start to ask for collective change. Right now, there's so much gaslighting around like, well, if you didn't buy that latte, if you didn't get avocado toast, if you moved to an area with like a lower cost of living, then you'd be okay. And it's like, well, some of that is true. We do have agency over a lot of things. But then there's other things like, why is health? Like I'm living in Mexico because I know that if I have a health issue, I can afford to pay for a doctor out of pocket. Mm -hmm. You know, like, why is health insurance the way that it is? Why does Amazon get to not pay livable wages? Like, right. <laughs> it's just like, those are those are questions. Yeah, how do you balance that in your, like, something I, I think about a lot is understanding the, the need and importance and the urgency of, collect, like, changing our culture around, like, so many systems. But, like, you know, because we're here 
financial systems and also creating like empowerment for the individual to, because I always view it as like, the more I heal, the more I can help others heal. And because I've called to do this work with around money, like I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that I can, you know, like through my own healing impact the lives of others and show them at least that it's possible be like, you know, kind of inspiration. But like, how do you think about that in terms of the collective work that needs to be done on a systems level that will outlive us as well um, versus like what we're here to do as individuals? I try and take a long view because if I were to look at just like the 24 hour news cycle, Mm -hmm. actually, I mean, today I read a story on the Washington post about this family that was downwardly mobile. And I don't remember what the, who the author was or what the title of the story was, but like I cried afterwards because it's so devastating. Like the father or the great grand, the great grandfather, the grandfather had been a carpenter and the father had worked at union jobs. And then the son was um, a contractor and some, some weeks he had a livable wage and some weeks he didn't. And it was just downward mobility for this family in Michigan. And it, it connects, like I have family that's like not in a great financial situation. So I just, I, I like sit with that heartbreak mm-hmm. of like the immediate. And then I also think about the long view. Um, one of my favorite books on financial empowerment um, is Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. So she wrote this book, I think in the late 1800s, like the 1870s or 1880s. And she starts off the book by like describing this really lavish meal that she has at the men's college. And she goes into like how buttery the bread is and like the curtains are really thick. And like, she just gives you a really clear visual of like the opulence of the men's college. And I think she was like an audience member. She Mm -hmm. wasn't a speaker. And then she goes to speak at the women's college and it's, it's like popper's food right? They're eating like old bread from the men's college. And it's, it's all of these things. And afterwards she has a conversation with the, the, I don't know, the governess, the person in charge of the women's college. And, and the, and she tells Virginia Woolf, it's like, well, women are property. Property can't give property. And this was what, 140 years ago? Yes. There's still a racial, there's still a gender pay gap. I think it's women earn, 83, 84 cents to every dollar a man earns. And like for Latinas as myself, the average Latina earns 57 cents to every dollar a white man earns. That stuff is still true and it's real. But I also like, I'm not property. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I also get to vote. Mm -hmm. I also, in some states, get to have abortion. Like it's just, so taking a step back makes it so that I can see progress. Right. It's, it's holding both of those things. And, and I also, uh, I'm, I'm Quaker. So I became Quaker when I moved to Philadelphia about three years ago. And they're, they're Christian. They're really into social justice. Mm-hmm. Like one of their big things is like they helped with the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, every conversation I have with them from the beginning was about putting faith into action. And that community helps me stay engaged with social justice work because I've always had this leaning inside of me, but I just didn't think it was possible for me to do anything. So actually connecting with them has me where I am today. Wow, it's beautiful. And it's so important to, to take that zoomed out view and like the long look at the big picture of 
progress, like you're saying, how far we've come. And also, yeah, sometimes I you can get down on like generational trauma and finances, but it's also important to know that generational like progress also occurred and holding multiple truths, mm-hmm. you know, and seeing things um, just, yeah, with kind of like a reverence more than like a constant criticism too. Oh, I love this conversation so much already. And I um, I wanted to ask you as well, how did you get into this work and what inspired you to to work with individuals on their, their relationship with money? So I was, as I mentioned at the beginning, I was a demographer. I thought I was going to work at the census. Mm-hmm. And after college, I was volunteering at a, at a place for people with severe mental illnesses or mental disorders. And I started working in that field and I thought maybe I'll be a social worker. Like I just, I wasn't sure. It took me, I felt like, I felt like Goldilocks. Like Mm -hmm. I was, it was either too much people, too much numbers. I wanted something that kind of held both Mm -hmm. because I had both sides of me. Like I love working with Excel and I love working with people on their money trauma. (laughs) As a financial planner, I get to do both. And what's really funny is that in college, I, I interned at Merrill Lynch, Mm -hmm. which is a broker dealer. And I thought this is not for me. I like very firmly said I am not an asset gatherer. I don't want to go look for people with money to then sell them things they may or may not need. Not that everyone at broker dealers does this, but that was a, that was the majority of my exposure. Mm-hmm. So I found my way to financial planning through George Kinder's Seven Stages of Money Maturity. Mm-hmm. So he wrote this book in the '90s and. In it, he describes the work he does as a financial planner, where he like helped people become aligned with their values. He helped um, people see the power of money um, because money can be really good at facilitating exchange, facilitating growth. Yeah. It can it can just streamline so many things. And I remember reading that book and being like, "That's not real. Like, no one does that for a living." Mm-hmm. And of course, thankfully, I met someone who did that for a living. And she carried with her a brochure from the CFP board that said, financial planning, a great career for women. (laughs) (laughs) And I started at that point, I'd like, I was four years out of college and I was on my fourth, like, oh no, I was four years out of college. I was on my third career or third, like entry level job. And I was really hesitant. I was like, I'm not switching again. I kind I like what I do mostly. I was a business analyst at a manufacturing firm. So I did get to work with people in numbers and I, I did volunteering outside of that. And I thought, you know, like, this is it, this is good enough. But I started attending financial planning association meetings and listening to people. And like, there were some people who, whose type of work doesn't, didn't interest me, but there were enough people doing really good work that led me to where I am today. What, what I feel is like the really good work is, or at least what I bring to clients is if you, like most people feel confused about their financial decisions and they come to financial planners, yes, to, to figure out the right solution. But a lot of the times it's just to feel confident in what they're implementing. There's so much to like the emotional side of our relationship with money and yeah, like feeling confident and like, how do you feel confident? It's like, especially when these topics of money are so stuffed down it's like you don't really have the space to breathe and become confident if you've never really spoken about it before or you were just expected to be great at it it's like we're not great at anything until we have horrible time like you know the 
first pancake is horrible. The second pancake is horrible. And you know, with money, it's like, we're just expected and assumed to be great at this thing. It's like, no, it's a skill. It's an emotional intelligence as well as an intellectual intelligence. And so, uh, it's so, it's so inspiring to just hear about how many like people are like doing the work that you're doing and like helping people like navigate these, these terrains and giving, like giving the air to the, like, you know, if you just like a flame, right. Or if you cover it, it's going to die out. But if you give it oxygen, you know, you can have it grow and stuff like that. So that's really cool. I'd love to know as well, just like, you know, give us a little sneak peek inside your community program. Like what are some things that you work on as a group and what are, what are some of the, the skills that you're, you're putting forward and, and just the space that you're holding? love to know more yeah definitely and i i want to point out um something that i heard you say like we're always bad at something the first time sometimes that's true sometimes that isn't Mm. right and i think i think we all have like different areas that we get to be challenged in for some people it's relationships or it could be food it could be money but there's just like if someone's listening and they don't have a hard time with money, it's not that you're a freak. Right. It's just like, it's just. <laughs> right. That's true. Yes. Uh, so let me switch over to Wolfskin Money. In Wolfskin Money, I spend a lot of time helping participants get clear on what they want for their lives. Like, what is it that you want to experience? Why do you want to experience that? And then we spend time on the how, like, how do you get there? So I'm getting ready for this week. This week's meeting is going to be on money archetypes mm. and, and bosque money. Bosque means forest in Spanish. And if you look up bosque in English, it also means like a grain area that that's around an area that's around water, a body of water in an arid region. Mm. Right. So like, I'm sure you had this in Barstow, but in Calexico, it was like, there was any water, there were these like green bushes around it. And then everything else was desert. Mm-hmm. Um, those green bushes are, are bosque. And, and I don't know, it made me feel good about like, oh, it's kind of describing what I grew up in. So, okay. Going, moving over to like this week's lesson is on, on money archetypes. And I have five different kinds of trees that represent different money archetypes. And the idea the, the thought is that, like, by making it trees, it's a lot more neutral, hmm. right? So, like, if you figure out that you are a magnolia tree or a saguaro, um, then you just are what you are. There's nothing like you, you are, like, these are your tendencies, and there's the challenges, and here's the gifts of it. How do you lean into other tree types? Because that's also, like, part of what I'm helping people, um, like, because trauma really is, like, constriction. It's when you get stuck in a pattern and you do it over and over and over again, whether or not it helps you. Mm-hmm. And a way to get out of that trauma is like to have more flexibility. So when I'm thinking about these money tree archetypes, if you're only in one of them, that might be really unbalanced. But as you start to lean into different areas, you'll have a wider skill set. Also, if you are a magnolia tree and you're married to a saguaro, it'll be easier to be like, okay, my partner and I have these different ways of being. Not that one is better than the other. How do we complement each other? How do we talk about 
the areas of friction and see how maybe like, I think sometimes what happens is like, if you're, if like someone's a really big saver and someone's a spender and like they're married, it could be that the saver is kind of um, outsourcing enjoyment to the spender mm-hmm. and the spender is outsourcing like planning to the saver. And it's actually like, how do you do, how do, how do each of us um, take over, like own the entirety of our money relationship? Not that you have to change the roles that you're in, but like, how do you have flexibility so that you're not stuck in the same response over and over? What's really important about community, at this community program, is that I focus a lot on making it into a circle as opposed to a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So a hierarchy... Think of like any kind of hunting animal, right? Like here's the alpha and like they let people know what to do next. Um, It's very much like a part of patriarchy. And what's nice about a hierarchy is that you always know who to blame, right? The person at the front. (laughs) Totally. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, What's hard about it is that you can kind of get stuck into like, you can't, you can't give input. If the person at the front isn't interested in hearing it, then you can't give input. And you'll see that sometimes in financial literacy. Mm-hmm. Like if the person teaching financial literacy is uncomfortable talking about a certain topic, then the topic doesn't get talked about. Mm-hmm. Wow. In a linked system, and that's more like bees. I think bees are more of a linked system. Like they're all kind of, they'll, they'll communicate with each other. Ants, ants are incredible at this. of just like all of them together with apparently no coordination, get the thing done. Right. Um, so that's what I'm trying to create as a facilitator. I create the, like the introductory container and then I help people exit. But during this time that we're here together, everyone has a valid and important point to make, even if they don't speak. So even just their, their presence in the group and their engagement changes the dynamic or like adds to the dynamic, adds to the dynamic is a better term. And I work really hard to make sure that it's very, um, that there's a lot of space for interaction. Again, that's more like a circle, like we're all kind of, and and sometimes it moves in ways that I wasn't expecting. Uh, Every session that I've had has been better than I thought it would be because people are coming in really willing to ask questions and share one of the things I'm always reminding participants is to share as to share what they're comfortable sharing, to be as as present as they as makes sense for them on that day on that topic. So there's there's like the setup of the group. I also have them do at least one or two exercises in every session. Like I was just talking about the money archetype session. Um, we also like we'll be looking at cash flow because that's one of like the biggest irrigation systems in our money. Even if you have, because you could live month to month on half a million dollars or on 50,000 mm-hmm. a year, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, it's less about the number and more about the systems you have in place. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds really awesome. I love um, just the, the whole person view. It sounds like that you're taking with, you know, just looking at systems and patterns and taking into consideration trauma is super important and money scripts and and being in relationship with others um you know sharing finances is super important and yeah i just love it sounds it truly sounds like amazing and and, you know like you're um talking about that as a circle and as like a community is really powerful and like 
to be the person, you know, like you're creating that, you know, and like it's your vision and then just to see it come to life. I'm just like, that's awesome. I just want to give you lots of credit. And, you know, I know it's stuff like this can be, can be like, okay, I've not seen it done before, but I want to do it anyway. And I do it this way. So yeah. What inspired you to, to really just like get this like up and running? Well, uh, that's a huge part of it. It's like, I want to be able to live my life out loud. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that I've been thinking about for years. I had, um, I had severe depression when I was a kid. And then in college, I remember going to group therapy and being like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like it just was so helpful. Maybe because um, as a Latina, maybe we're very community focused. I don't know, but it was just so helpful. Like I didn't feel as alone. Mm -hmm. That's another part about groups is that a lot of the times people won't share about their money, even one-on-one -on -one with a financial planner, because there's so, there could be so much secrecy and shame, especially when it comes to money traumas. But we go slowly in the sessions and it, we create, I work, we create a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And once there's a really strong sense of belonging, it becomes easier to share things that might feel shameful because you know, because shame is really the fear of being thrown out of the group, but you're not going to be thrown out of this group. Um, I'm also very clear about like my social justice bent towards this work. So it, it calls in the kind of people who, again, I mean, I worry, I don't want it to become an echo chamber. I want people to be able to have their own individuality, but there are certain constraints around like imperialism is a thing that we've done and that we do the racial wealth gap, is real like those are kind of like things we start off with yeah to have that kind of just like common like respect for where we are now in our culture and society too just to be like okay and and we're we're here to like heal ourselves and create the systems that we want to see oh my gosh this has been so inspiring i'm really excited that we connected and that i'm we're able to to share these stories and um have you ever thought about having a podcast because i would listen to that and i think you're so great I, I was thinking um there's this coach i love christine hassler i used to listen to her a ton and she's mostly like a romantic relationship coach at least that's what i took from her but she would do these coaching sessions with clients so i think i would do that cool. um like if anybody was willing to like have me record or dive into their money trauma. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Me, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I will ask you my, my last question, which I alluded to earlier, but it is, if you can tell me about what, when you think of the, like a rich life, what does that mean to you? How are you building a rich life? What's your North star for, for cultivating that experience for yourself? So Voska money right now is a huge part of my rich life. It's so um, it's so much work and it's also so much fun. And there's a there's a quote by Lila Watson, Lila Watson. She is an Aboriginal activist and artist in Australia, and she has this quote that says, "If you have come here to help, then you're wasting your time." But if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And to me, that speaks to, I can't do for others what they need to do for themselves, mm -hmm. but together we can, like 
me helping others actually heals me too. That is a big part of my rich life. I very much, like I said, my first inclination when it came to work was being a social worker. Like I love being able to like help people be more of themselves because that helps me. That gives me more permission to shine weirdly and brightly and loudly. Um, so that's a big part of my, my rich life. It's like my professional identity, the, bring, the work that I bring. I also really want to be a mother one day. Um, Working on dating. It's hard when you're a nomad. <laughs> it's also possible. It is. Those are, that's what it feels like right now. Like when I, one of the exercises that I have people do is to like think about the last chapter of their life, mm-hmm. um, which can feel really scary. But like when you're looking back and that last chapter, what happened? And I like to think mine that mine is going to be like a playful sage. Um, oh my God. The word sage in Spanish means sabio, like wisdom. And I, I love being playful. Like, I feel like that when I think about the time that I, when I was depressed, it's like, I wasn't playful enough. Like, honestly. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> so playful sage, world liberation. Yes. Those are the things <laughs> that would make my life. Right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so, I could see you, the playful sage, like, when your rich life is happening in front of your eyes, like that is something that's really fucking cool. So, um, um. all right. Tell us about where we can find you, where we can stock you, how we can sign up for the Bosque round two, or if you're offering it again or just anything yeah, you'd like to share. I'd love to hear it. So Bosque, the round two Bosque is coming up in June. Then we have dates tentatively for August and October. Uh, you can find me at allthecolors.net. NET for network. That's my my website. That's the main place where my work lives. I also have a blog on there where you can read more about my thinking on money. <laughs> I'm also really, I've recently became active on Twitter. So Twitter has oh. been really fun, especially to connect with other financial planners. That's mostly what I do there. Instagram and LinkedIn. Amazing. So I'll um, have everything linked in the show notes. Um, I'll reach out to you to get all of those, but um Yes, everything will be linked in the show notes. You can follow Diana on social and join El Bosque. And it just sounds really exciting. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Bye. Yay, that is the episode. I want to thank again, Diana, for coming on, for dropping all of those amazing nuggets of wisdom and inspiration I learned a lot from the conversation and just I feel really rejuvenated to to continue forward with not only my own personal money healing but just engaging more with this topic as a a collective issue as well so that's it for today I will see you in the next episode and I love you bye